I'd just like to start off with a, a moment's silence. Uh, you know, these are very difficult and challenging times because of COVID. There is so much pain and suffering around us. And uh, so many uh, healthcare workers and others who are uh, people who provide us food and services uh, in these very challenging times uh, and who make our lives possible and uh, for us to be here together. So just a few moments of uh, silence, if we may, of, uh, of gratitude uh, to spirit and gratitude to all those who embody the human form in spirit. Just a few moments. Thank you. Uh, we talk at, uh, we have this, we come together at a time of uh, great human suffering and pain. Uh, collective human suffering and pain more than uh, we have seen in our lifetime. And uh, it is interesting that uh, it was the Buddha who uh, uh, responded to the pain of the human condition and uh, left the palace to go out into the forest and uh, to try and understand why there was so much pain and suffering and on a little visit outside. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. Uh, when he stepped out of the palace, he saw different facets of suffering. He saw uh, an old man, he saw a sick man, and he saw death. And he wondered why this happened. And when he realized that this was inevitable, uh, he was deeply distraught and gave up the luxuries of the palace for the forest to step out and find an answer uh, to that situation. And uh, so he sat under a Bodhi tree and he meditated and meditated and meditated. And uh, it's important to remember that he did this after he had engaged in uh, all the, uh, the, the, the traditional wisdom and the traditional sadhanas and philosophies uh, that were available to him at his time and found that none of them uh, adequately uh, not only didn't answer the question, uh, but also uh, didn't offer a way out of this. So the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is heir to this tradition that was born more than 2,600 years ago. And uh, so when the Buddha came out of this uh, deep meditation, uh, we believed that he was enlightened. So actually it was Siddhartha Gautam, the prince, who had now become the Buddha, uh, the enlightened one. And that experience of uh, uh, enlightenment, uh, he, was, he found it very difficult and challenging to share because uh, it was an experience and it was a non-conceptual experience. And even if you look at the most mundane level of experience is that, you know, how can I explain to you what a cup of tea or a cup of coffee tastes like unless you have also tasted it? So how much, much more challenging uh, he had felt that the experience of uh, enlightenment, whatever enlightenment is, we can never know until we've experienced it, because any attempt to verbalize it is just that. It's a verbalization, it's a conceptualization. So just like you can try and explain what a cup of coffee tastes like and completely fail to do so unless someone else has tasted the cup of coffee. And uh, so uh, he hesitated, and then uh, he came across uh, his fellow travelers, the group of ascetics, uh, and uh, felt uh, that uh, 
he needed to respond to their skepticism because he was now uh, healthy and he no longer looked like an ascetic. And they were very suspicious that had he compromised and given away the, 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 the journey, the, the sadhana and its rigor. And uh, so he felt that he must uh, share that. And so he came up with what we call the Four Noble Truths. And I mean, what makes them noble is actually, um, you know, the word noble is more an English translation of, of Sanskrit, which really meant that somebody who was aware was considered noble. So these were truths that came from a deep level and of, of understanding of the true nature of reality. And so he suggested that um, we had to acknowledge that there was suffering and not to avoid looking at it and experiencing in its faith, face. So that he felt that often if we were in denial of the human condition, that it would not be possible for us to overcome its challenges and pain. And then he went on to add to that, that, look, there is a way out of this. And uh, uh, there is a solution uh, to this problem. And so you have, uh, he then suggested that uh, uh, the dharma or what he was going to teach, which was the method, uh, was the way out of this, uh, this experience of pain and suffering. And what was that method? The method was uh, uh, meditation, practice, uh, that enabled us to see the true nature of reality. And uh, so the uh, Dalai Lama, uh, you know, was uh, um, born in Tibet. He's going to be 85, 86 years, or 86 years old this year. And what was remarkable was as he inherited this Buddhist tradition uh, that came from India. But what was unique in this transmission of Buddhism to Tibet uh, was that Traditionally, when religions had traveled, uh, they had traveled through scriptures and texts. But it was the kings of Tibet and, and, and the leadership of Tibet who actually reached out, not merely to the scriptures uh, that uh, emanated from the Buddhist tradition, but the practitioners, the people who had experienced the method and the insights uh, that the Buddha might have. And it's very unique to remember that uh, the Buddha, when he was dying, you know, told his followers that my word is not final. It should stand up to the scrutiny of your reason and logic and your experience. And that it would continue to evolve. So we believe that the many cycles of the Dharma uh, that the Buddha thought continue to evolve and grow uh, through the understanding and insights and techniques and practices of thousands of teachers uh, that followed the Buddha and practiced in his tradition, and the most recent and the most eminent of them being the Dalai Lama. So when Buddhism traveled to Tibet, what traveled was not just the words of the Buddha, which actually were put together 100 years uh, after his uh, death at the conclave uh, from an oral tradition There was an effort to try, it still wasn't written down, there was an effort to try and standardize this and for it to continue to grow. So when uh, Buddhism traveled to Tibet, it was amazing that they expanded the Tibetan language to be able to provide a much larger conceptual framework for this teaching and the experience of this teaching to be documented.
because uh, there was a limitation, inherent limitation uh, in, in, of, of language. And they documented the method. And the great teachers who traveled from India uh, to Tibet uh, carried the method and lived there and taught it so that the, 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 the practitioners in Tibet actually had an experiential insight into the nature of the Buddha's teaching. So today, the Dalai Lama is not just who he is or what he teaches and what he practices, but all of these combined. So he embodies that uh, teaching and that uh, aspiration. And there are so many things we learn from him. And uh, I will only try and you know, flag a few important ones. First, by just looking at some elements of his uh, life and his aspiration. So, you know, he's 86 years old and he's a cancer survivor. He's had lung problems, so he's been in quarantine and retreat. But he'll say four or five years ago, here was this man considered the preeminent Buddhist monk and perhaps the preeminent spiritual master of our times, who was receiving teaching and instruction, the oral tradition from lamas younger than himself. He engaged and he engages even today. I don't know how many exact hours it is. I haven't met him in two years because of the uh, because of COVID. But before that, it was four or five hours a day of rigorous practice every day. So he had no claims of sort of being born in an absolute sort of sense of uh, enlightenment. And just because he is regarded as the 14th reincarnation, the Buddha aspect of compassion uh, of the lineage of the Dalai Lamas. So it wasn't just a spontaneous realization. He worked hard at it. And he started his uh, teaching uh, in the traditional method of training of Buddhist monks. And at age 16, somewhat prematurely, uh, because of the Chinese uh, invasion of Tibet, he assumed temporal power. But before he did that, in order to earn the same geisha degree, which is like a PhD uh, for Buddhists, he had to engage in public debate in front of the community. So people were convinced that this man had embodied and had the intellectual rigor and the experiential insights that were worthy of a reincarnated embodiment of the Buddha. And so he exposed himself to that. And this is the man who continues till today to engage in practice. Uh, so that is, uh, the, the, that is the essence of, uh, you know, who the Dalai Lama uh, is as a practitioner. And uh, he also felt that in the spirit of the Buddha's teachings, they must continue to evolve and, and respond uh, to both uh, contemporary challenges, situations, and contemporary wisdom. So very early in his life, he decided, uh, well, you know, when he, when he was still in his mid-20s, that he had to pass on the temporal authority, which means the political authority as the, as the leader of uh, Tibetans, uh, onto a democratically elected uh, individual or a group of people. And so 10 years ago, uh, the baton of temporal leadership, which is what the Dalai Lama's traditionally held, was passed on to an elected leader. Uh, he felt that you know, the times had changed, and, and though the Buddha had hesitantly embraced women into the order, that was important that women uh, should be as, uh, as entitled to the spiritual quests and its forms, processes, and structures as men were. So he made it possible, uh, not by decree, 
because we should remember uh, that the Dalai Lama is the preeminent Lama by consensus. It's not like the Shankaracharya, it's not like the Pope or the Imam of Mecca. Uh, he has no statutory uh, authority per se, other than what his personal qualities as the occupant of the chair evoke. In fact, he is not, he is not only not uh, the, 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 the head of his own sect of Buddhism, uh, and so he's recognized by the diverse sects of Buddhism and now by people of across, you know, different uh, uh, philosophies and traditions uh, as uh, a great spiritual master. Uh, so he said temporal authority and he built up a consensus because he couldn't decree. And he felt that if he decreed that women should be allowed the same training and education as monks, there would be enormous resistance. So he spent 30, 40 years bringing up and nurturing the consensus, persuading people uh, that this was necessary. So today, I mean, it's about so three, four years ago, uh, the first batch of uh, Tibetan women nuns have completed their formal training, and they're called Geshe Maas, as the monks who teach in the monasteries. Of course, the, uh, the, 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 the breadth of acceptance uh, is going to take a complete and total acceptance so that they can uh, be interchangeable is going to take time. But uh, the principle of it has been firmly uh, established in practice and tradition. Uh, he then felt that it was important that we should engage uh, with uh, modern science and not engage with modern science to prove that the assumptions of Buddhism uh, arrived at thousands of years ago, today stand validated by science. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he felt that knowledge and understanding, because it's non-conceptual, is a continuing process of evolution and growth. And, uh, and so that the, he, he's located uh, his work and his study, both in the traditional monasteries. So monasteries have been established in India on the lines of the individual monasteries uh, in Tibet uh, before the Chinese uh, occupation, which incidentally, uh, you know, killed uh, some you know, an estimated three million people and um, uh, destroyed more than a thousand monasteries and were very brutal uh, in their destruction of both the monasteries and, and the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. It was the great magnanimity of Jawaharlal Nehru, much despised in some quarters, who welcomed uh, the Dalai Lama into India, uh, despite the hostility of the Chinese and the challenges it created for India. Uh, gave them land and gave them opportunity uh, in, in, in a context of enormous struggle uh, to preserve that uh, civilizational heritage. And it is uh, now that uh, His Holiness was often described uh, uh, India as the, the guru uh, to the Tibetan chelas, and I do believe that that relationship has now been reversed. And uh, so that His Holiness remains now the preeminent spokesman and the preeminent uh, global figure uh, that embodies the highest aspiration of India's civilizational heritage. And uh, he has, uh, you know, he, 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 he moves from cycles and cycles of you know, commitments at different times. And he believes that today, one of his primary commitments is the revival, appreciation, and celebration of India's civilizational heritage and the value and meaning that it has to contemporary predicaments. 
not merely as a harking back to India's glorious past, but the ways and means in which it can help nurture uh, harmony, satisfaction, issues of the environment, and the issues that human beings and planet confront today. And so in that journey and in that process, there is a simultaneous um, study and engagement that happens, as I mentioned, in the traditional monasteries that have been recreated in India to match each of virtually each of the major monasteries that were destroyed in Tibet in their traditions, but also in the modern university, in the modern academy, both in India and uh, internationally. So our foundation, for example, has, uh, has in, in recent years set up uh, at Goa University, uh, Dalai Lama Chair for Indic Studies, not just Buddhism, uh, Indic Studies, and that uh, in Orissa, in Pune, and, 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 uh, and at several universities uh, internationally, uh, in Britain, in the United States, uh, and elsewhere. And the idea was that uh, what is it that today modern science is telling us? What is it that the modern body of knowledge uh, is telling us? And if that body of knowledge, which is not definitive, just like the non-conceptual experience cannot be described definitively, then we have to accept and we have to change. So at one time, traditional belief, certainly in Buddhism and in many parts of the world, including India, was the earth is flat. Now we know through science that the earth is not flat. So we have to accept it. We can't hang on to the scripture and say, no, because they said X. Or to say that, uh, pat ourselves on the back, that even as we uh, are, are you know, not following the dharma in the sense of its values, that because we may have had plastic surgery, we may have had flight uh, thousands of years ago, that somehow we are a superior civilization for what we were rather than what we are. And I think that was a, is a very seminal uh, aspect of the Dalai Lama's quest. Um, so there are some Im very important uh, bearings of uh, the Dalai Lama's position and understanding and teaching derived from Buddhism. So I want to reflect a little bit on some of these uh, having given you a glimpse, uh, you know, of the man, uh, and I, who I've you know, sort of had the privilege to be associated for 40 years, and can say that you know I've known him very closely, and that here's a man who, in his deepest reflexes, walks his talk and lives uh, what he preaches. So, what does he preach? Derived from the structure of Buddha's teachings, was that. The, 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 it piggybacks on the principle of uh, interdependence, that we need to recognize that our lives depend on causes and conditions, many of which are created by other human beings, but also by circumstances outside our control. So today, our lives are being dictated by what's happening with the COVID virus. And the COVID virus is not a direct product of your and my uh, actions, uh, but of causes and effects in which we're still trying to fathom, whether it was the Chinese who let it loose or what happened. We don't really know, and it's not important. It's important to recognize that it is on the basis of cause and effect. And in this context, he, is, he broke free from what he believed was the sort of the tyranny of the, the Brahmanism of that time that had created divisions of class and uh, 
caste and other forms of distinction and felt that it was possible for a human being to communicate directly with the ultimate reality, whether you wanted to call it God or whether you wanted whatever you wanted to call it. So the Buddha said, look, I am not going to engage in the dialectic of whether there is a God and what is the nature of that God. I do not deny that God exists. I do not want to confirm that God exists. I believe that in the pursuit of individual and collective human uh, contentment and harmony, we can do without it. And I do want to emphasize, it is not a denial of God, nor is it an affirmation of God. That's very crucial. And it doesn't require you to deny God or to embrace God. And we have various understandings of God, you know, whether it's a creator God, whether it's the God of, you know, the, the Ramayana, or it is the God of whatever. What he was really talking about was creator God. And so that is an important distinction between uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. It needs to be underlined. He did not deny God. He just said that because it cannot be established in the, the context of Buddhism, we will, should not get into that debate because it can be divisive and it creates uh, conflict and confusion. So you have the idea of uh, impermanence. And then you have the idea of uh, um, what we look at karma. And we talk about karma as cause and effect, that we have a particular action and that will have a reaction. And uh, I think there is, there is, some, there is often confusion uh, between uh, what uh, you know, different people look at uh, karma as. And you know, some people look at karma as that if I do a negative action, then you know, the God in heaven will sort of bang me on the head and also or life or circumstance uh, will give me an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, the Buddha and His Holiness see it somewhat differently. They say that uh, our thoughts rather than our actions create imprints in our consciousness and in our minds, which then predispose us to different forms of experience and action. And this is illustrated, for example, by the difference between certainly contemporary uh, conversation between, say, someone like Mahatma Gandhi, who said that the means are as, as important as the ends. So His Holiness would argue it is the intention uh, behind uh, an action. Uh, so, for example, if uh, uh, there is a group of uh, you know, people of a particular faith who are uh, looking out uh, for somebody else uh, of, of another tradition, there is a lot of conflict happening in there, and I decide that I'm going to shelter uh, somebody in order to save their lives. Someone comes and asks me, are you sheltering so-and-so? And I said, no, in order to save his life. I've actually told a lie, which in a moral ethical framework may not be a legitimate right thing to say, but my intention was one of compassion. And it goes uh, the principle of intention. So it is the principle of intention that uh, establishes our psycho psychological matrix, and each one of our actions is a cause for future uh, experience. So this principle of uh, you know causality, and so we exist because of certain causes and conditions which can be traced back infinitely. So whatever the role of God and divine may be, we have finally been born 
but weak because of the union of the father's sperm and the mother's egg. And that comes together to create a human form. Now we may, 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 we may differ on where consciousness uh, comes from, whether it comes from our previous uh, birth and our previous identity. So in the case of Aparna is Aparna and me is Rajiv or Rituja. So is Rituja taking uh, rebirth or I'm taking rebirth and is that I taking rebirth? So an important area of uh, principle of sort of uh, um, divergence perhaps is that you know, Buddhism does not subscribe to a single idea of Atman, of the soul, uh, as, 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 as a constant unity uh, that moves from one life uh, to the other. So what this enables uh, us to do is when we look at this diversity uh, is that uh, uh, we begin to recognize uh, in the context of reincarnation that everyone here in this, uh, in this group has at some point or the other been my mother, my father, uh, my brother, my sister. And so I am inevitably feel compassionate and interested and connected uh, to all of you. Because, you know, I lost my father 15 years ago, but uh, just because he isn't there, it doesn't mean that my affection for him has, has diminished. So the cornerstone of the uh, Dalai Lama's aspiration, and he is called the Buddha aspect of compassion, uh, is the nurturing of compassion. And, uh, uh, you know, we believe that it is in training the mind to be compassionate and that the great strength of India's civilization and heritage is training the mind uh, and the opportunities it offers, and hence, uh, you know, the, the the huge emphasis on the method of being able to train the mind. And uh, so we have. They have. Um, when I say we, our foundation has been involved involved with this. There's been a great deal of research being done and at, at some Indian institutions, but many Western institutions, where they find that people who are unhappy or people who have mental problems, uh, uh, you know, when you talk to them, there is a great obsession with I, me, mine. And you'll find that, you know, they're always saying, I am doing this, me, 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 mine. So not this, not this similar at all uh, to the Hindu tradition, that uh, the more we can soften the I, and think of other people, uh, the happier and more contented uh, we can be. And uh, so, uh, you know, at universities, they are now doing uh, brain mapping and testing and finding out that when you use the techniques of training the mind to nurture and cultivate compassion, there are neurobiological changes in the brain uh, and that people uh, experience greater calm and equanimity. And this connects to a, 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 a very important principle and need uh, you know, of our times, and that is that we are li living in a fragile and fragmented planet where there is so much conflict between different faiths and traditions. And this is something that I shared with Aparna, and she was a little surprised, uh, is that uh, uh, the Dalai Lama has often quoted Swami Vivekananda and Ramakrishna, more than that, as a source of his inspiration for a very important area of his work and our work with the foundation. And that is nurturing interfaith harmony and conversation and dialogue, not through tolerance, but to celebrate diversity and not to claim 
that because, you know, Hinduism is all embracing, we are Hindus, and so you're a Hindu too. And uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the most recent uh, example has been the life of Sri Ramakrishna himself. Well, Sri Ramakrishna was considered an avatar, an embodiment of the divine, Raman Krishna. And so what does he do? You know, he becomes a, a pujari of a temple set up by a lower caste, uh, a woman who came from the lower caste and was a queen. And so he breaks through the, the aspect of caste uh, and aftar. And then as he grows older, he engages in the diverse practices of Hinduism itself. Because there are many diverse practices in Hinduism, practiced by different castes, different communities, uh, and, and uh, different uh, traditions, Dvait and Advait and Tantra, and you name it. He did this in full public view. And at the end of it, what did he do? What does he do? Because it was the need of the time. The British were in India and they were creating divide uh, in order to rule. So he goes outside the temple preaching, precincts and sets up a little cottage, a kutir, the Bengalis call it, and he engages in the practices and life of a Muslim, including a Muslim, in an Islamic diet. He does that with Christianity. He does that with the other traditions. So here is a man, an avatar, and, and Swami Vivekananda, who is follower, Swami Vivekananda has said that the Buddha is my Ishta and Ramakrishna is my master. So that is the aspect of Hinduism, that His Holiness, uh, I mean, He celebrates the entire spectrum of Buddhism and Hinduism, and He de derives great inspiration from uh, Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda and says this idea he has concretized, inspired by them. And so, in the continuing evolution of Buddhism, this has been the most recent contribution to the growth and impact of uh, what the manner in which Buddhism is practiced. And it is what enables him to go to a mosque and perform the namaz. It is what enables him to be invited by Mr. Bhagwat to address the World Hindu Conference and say to them that, you know, I think Hinduism today should be building schools and colleges and hospitals instead of building temples to a thunderous applause. It is what enables him to say that each one of us needs a different mental diet. So just like we need a different physical diet, you know, depending on what our constitution is. So some people like can eat. If you're a Punjabi, you will eat a particular kind of fatty, spicy food. And uh, if you live in the, in the hills, you, you will probably eat meat. Whereas if you live in the south, you have a different kind of sensibility and a different diet. So different religions and cultures and traditions have evolved in different parts of the world to respond to these social and cultural needs. And so each one of us tweaks our particular mental diet. And it is this principle that today we see and have seen, which the Western, Westerners, when they came into India, failed to recognize. And they said, you know, what kind of tradition is this? You have a thousand gods. Why do you have a thousand gods? God is one. And they missed the point. And I think many of us, you know, I was born a Hindu and I still call myself a Hindu Buddhist. We missed the point that each, each individual deity represented not just a different facet of consciousness, 
but was individualized for us. So if I have a certain profile and a certain sensibility, I would engage with, say, a wrathful form. If I was a shy, timid person, a wrathful deity, and vice versa. So a good teacher would fine-tune, or we would have a proclivity. So uh, somebody would worship Hanuman, somebody would worship somebody else, would, uh, would you know, worship uh, uh, Lord Krishna or, or, or what have you. So we already have embodied the principle of uh, diversity and in, in our practice. So uh, this has been one of his great contributions to our times. And in the embracing of uh, science, He's been able to establish that you know there is no single reality, because today modern science tells us that in quantum physics and quantum theory, for example, that the presence of the observer changes the nature of reality. And if you haven't, please go onto go to YouTube and look at a look at the experiment. It's called the split experiment, where a beam of light goes through through the two little patches and see what happens to them when they're in the presence of an observer. So the minute we realize that there are diverse realities, we begin to respect diversity inherently. So he continues to celebrate uh, uh, you know, India's remarkable uh, diversity and, uh, and, and, and spiritual heritage and to learn from it. And uh, you know, it, it's been documented very often when he's uh, you know, traveling abroad and you know, when he had his first meeting with uh, President Obama, uh, it was reported that, you know, in a one-hour meeting, he spent 40 minutes talking about India's culture and civilization and how important it was uh, to uh, finding responses to the global, uh, global condition and the global predicament. So what makes him unique is the, the philosophical framework that he provides to the human condition, to the methods and techniques that he offers so that we can move from knowledge to understanding to realization. Because what happens very often is when we listen or we read the scriptures, we're very impressed by it. We repeat them. We mouth them. But when the stimulus comes, because we have not truly understood it and we have not realized it, we are not able to practice what the scriptures tell us. We're only able to talk about it or to uh, in try and impose it on others without creating the discourse of living that philosophy. And the strength of our heritage lies in method and lies in wisdom. And that method was the, you know, whether you look at Patanjali's, uh, you know, the idea of yoga and how Vivekananda took it further, that's the most recent emphatic articulation of it, which you tend to put aside when it's convenient to shelve uh, the things that uh, Vivekananda said. So Vivekananda pointed out to us that even within the Hindu tradition, we have not different castes, but we have four different sensibilities, the four different kinds of yoga. So there's the karma yoga, which is for the, the personality and the person who has you know, the proclivity, proclivity for action. You have bhakti yoga for someone who is into devotion. You have jnana yoga for the intellectual. You have the raj yoga for the person who wants to engage in meditation and the more metaphysical aspects of the practice. Of course, these are not four distinct varieties. 
You know, I'm a great admirer of the Ramakrishna Mission and I received my first initiation in Diksha uh, from Swami Ranganathananda, of the, uh, who later became president of the Ramakrishna Mission. And the great joy of my life was that when I met His Holiness, when I became his student, that I was able to introduce uh, uh, His Holiness and uh, Swami Ranganathananda to each other. They became good friends. And uh, Swamiji visited uh, His Holiness in uh, uh, Dharamsala and in, in His Holiness went to Belurmat many times. And uh, so we still have a very warm relationship between the Ramakrishna Mission and uh, His Holiness. And uh, they are not exclusive uh, to each other at all. And so it, we come from a heritage and a tradition that says that without losing the core of our beliefs, we must be open to learning from all wisdom, modern science, the different religions, the different uh, practices. So, I mean, this is trying a sort of a very sort of rushed uh, overview of uh, what is a very complex and challenging uh, uh, individual uh, to understand. But as he often says, that uh, religion uh, is a means uh, to an end. Uh, the practice of religion is not an end in itself, and that his religion is compassion. Sir, I would like to start with, I would like you to give certain uh, real-life examples of refugees or the Buddhists who are here now they are no longer refugees or Indians in Himachal whom Dalai Lama has impacted directly. How has it made a difference to their life? This is my first question. And my second question is that being a lay Buddhist, I believe in cause and effect, but how come no effect ever uh, you know, affects China as a collective karma for what have they've done? Not now, but like from 51 onwards when they captured Tibet. Uh, well, you know, the point is that let, let's just look at the Tibetan refugees. All right. They are refugees. They do not have Indian nationality. A few of them who were born in India or at some later point uh, were within a certain period who were born in India have been given uh, uh, Indian uh, citizenship for rather than nationality. And so the the, the, the Tibetan refugees are an amazing uh, story in human history, uh, which is a great tribute to India and a great tribute to the Tibetans. And that, uh, that here is a refugee community around, you know, sort of what, 70 years, uh, more than that, yeah, 70 odd years uh, as refugees in India who have remained substantially welcomed by their hosts while preserving uh, the essentials of their uh, heritage and culture. That is a remarkable uh, achievement. And interestingly, that, you know, worldwide, uh, you know, the great strength of Hinduism was its ability to assimilate. And so many cultures came in and much, much as we might, be, we might want to deny them, uh, we have been impacted by each one of them in, in some way or the other, whether reacting to it or assimilating them, uh, embracing them. But Buddhism, which was never a proselytizing religion, has been assimilated in extremely diverse uh, cultures, from Mongolia to China, 
Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa. There is even now in Pakistan, <laughs> you know, Buddhist practitioners in Dubai. And it is amongst the, in, in the West, uh, it is the fastest growing, uh, not a religion, because, you know, whether it's a religion or not is sort of, is a matter of semantics, but people who call themselves friends of Buddhism, which means that they don't formally become Buddhists, but they learn from Buddhism and assimilate aspects of Buddhism into their own lives and practices. So that has been the achievement of the Tibetan uh, community uh, in India, to be able to strike that balance of identity and yet remaining welcome by the hosts. And no small credit to the Indian community and to India as a civilization and uh, the Indian political class and the, uh, the, the citizens and the people of India, and which is why the Dalai Lama is amongst the most sought after uh, speakers and uh, you know, people to come and bless events and functions and institutions, perhaps the most sought after uh, in India today. And that's a great tribute to them as a refugee community. You know, in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the other aspect that you mentioned as to uh, why haven't the Chinese paid for it? Well, I mean, in, in, uh, we, in, in, I mean, for for a for a person in India and, and those of us who have grown up in the Hindu tradition, uh, you know, the, the law of karma doesn't uh, you know play itself out uh, in in a lifetime or a few lifetimes, and uh, it, it 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 is something that unfolds over eons of lifetimes. And uh, also that we, you know, we tend to, uh, the, His Holiness has always said that if there is, a, there is this uh, um, predicament, the Tibetan predicament is really an outcome also of the collective Tibetan karma. So just because, you know, His Holiness is a, is a remarkable human being and today the Tibetans are being remarkable human beings, uh, you know, it is not a X equals Y. It is a, it, when I say it is a matrix, because at any one time, there are numerous influences that are in, you know, unfolding uh, from the impact uh, of uh, our intentions. So I think we misunderstand karma, because it is actually karmas that combine. They sort of, you know, like a little, like a khichdi uh, in some ways, that different aspects fructify at different times depending on what the catalyst to cause and effect is at that time. So the Tibetan story is not yet over. And maybe that, as His Holiness has suggested, that uh, it was the positive karma of uh, you know, the Tibetan heritage and, and uh, their philosophy and idea, that if the Chinese hadn't come in, maybe Buddhism uh, and His Holiness would not have traveled out of Tibet and been able to reach out to the entire world. And so maybe it was their negative karma, but the, the positive karma of the rest of the world. It's very hard to, you know, sometimes we make karma an excuse for the good and the bad. And I think it's too complex uh, to be able to say X equals Y. Uh, it is many influences that come together and then manifest in ways that we, we cannot always immediately identify. So you mentioned Brahmanical, Brahmanical tyranny during Buddha's time. Uh -huh. Of course, I will not argue with you, surely, but there is very Please little... Please do. Which... I will not argue back because <laughs> I recognize... Oh, I, 
I recognize that there is a diversity of perception. I do not believe in absolute truth. So your truth is your truth. Why should I contest it? So please feel comfortable with your truth. Yeah, okay, it necessarily doesn't have to be my truth or whatever truth. There are some facts which... which that is your be... truth. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Yeah, truth, my truth, your truth actually dissolves the idea of facts. So there's very little evidence of any ossification of the Hindu society, for example, at any time, specifically uh, at during Buddha's time. And I think there is a lot of new data evidence that's coming up for instance, there's some exceptional work by Sufia Pathan and uh, uh, Dr. Martin in the University of Czech Republic on uh, Western foundations of modern caste, for example. However, uh, given all of that, you know, Buddha's teachers were all Vedic, basically. And India, through its ecosystem of enlightened masters, Mahavir, Buddha, Guru Nanak, they were basically creating punts. And so the idea that Buddha was responding to a certain situation in a downfall of the society doesn't necessarily have to be true. He could simply coming sprouting up like, like flowers in the Indian spiritual ecosystem who has some new ideas, some new perceptions which he may want to share. And this India has produced, I mean, Bhagwan Swaminarayan, even Osho or... Uh, many new masters who created Lingayats, for example, have their own punts. And, and so it doesn't have to be as a response to a certain denigration of society. That is my only humble submission to you. It actually feeds into a very negative, um, almost a British uh, or Islamist, if I may also say, uh, narrative to keep deriding uh, Hinduism. That's all. I'll end with that. Thank you. I respect your truth. <laughs> no problem. I'm happy, you know, it's your truth, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if uh, I, I, there's no, I have no problem with it. It's your truth. And I, and I really appreciate your sharing it. Because every perspective and every truth that I get, sense that I get, it enriches my, my truth. And, uh, you know, a, uh, that's all. I mean, thank you. And if it works for you, and it brings you a wonder, wonderful smile that you have and the glow that you have on your face, fantastic. Thank you, sir, for the talk. Uh, my question, I have two questions regarding to it. According to reincarnation theory in Buddhism, we can say Dalai Lama comes after and after. So uh, when uh, we can predict the next Dalai Lama. So when uh, the present Dalai Lama was uh, predicted that he would be regarded, so would there was any, uh, you can say, problem? And when he was uh, born uh, in, uh, in that system, so we can see many, uh, we can see, uh, we give many respect to them. So did the respect given to them was because we, we can say it's today's Dalai Lama is that or it's something very new for us. See, the uh, you know, reincarnation is a very, again, because it's non-conceptual, you know, whether we talk of Atma, we talk of Anatma, as I um, you know, sort of tried to share before that uh, it is all it is very conceptual we sort of give it a you know words and we're dealing with atman is this and etc etc et 
So uh, uh, in uh, Buddhism, we don't believe in the continuity of a single strand as, you know, Atman is, but of something much more subtle, uh, which, I mean, for want of a better word, I mean, I can't explain it uh, uh, in, in uh, uh, want of a better word. It's a, it's a continuity of, let's say, consciousness, a subtle mind, and you can argue it's subtle mind and consciousness is Atman, and how we can go around, the merry-go-round in eternity. Uh, we have the humility to recognize that reincarnations fail and that uh, from the first Dalai Lama to the 14th, uh, there, there is belief that some of these some of the people who were identified as the Dalai Lamas may have been a mistake. Uh, and it happens to, even today that in this process uh, of which it unfolds increasingly, uh, as you know, the centuries passed by and the integrity of the process uh, was diluted. So the Dalai Lama uh, earns, as I mentioned before, uh, his stature by who he is. I mean, who cares uh, who you know, a, a reincarnated person is unless he manifests the qualities of uh, an evolved, compassionate, a human being uh, who makes uh, a difference in the world and whose presence and energies and what have you, uh, people feel the impact of. Now, it's also very interesting that when we say that the 13th Dalai Lama was reborn as the 14th, we're not absolutely sure that it was that being because we don't have the idea of Atman. We have that, I, I mean, I, I mean I, I, I'm, I'm an imperfect teacher, so I cannot entirely completely explain it verbally. And I think few people can, uh, because I gave you the example of, I can't tell you what tea tastes like, then I certainly can't tell you what is reincarnated. Uh, uh, but to look ahead in terms of the next uh, Dalai Lama, so His Holiness has been very clear that um, he, not you know, not, not the Dalai Lama, uh, the spirit or the aspiration that he embodies, and this is a very important distinction between Buddhism and Hinduism, no matter what we claim to be fact or not fact, uh, because we believe that there is no absolute truth and that truth is relative. Um, uh, and, and again, I say that, you know, when we believe it, we also believe that you're entitled to believe that it's not so. Because if that's what works for you, fantastic. Why should we quarrel over, <laughs> or something like that? Or disagree, bother to disagree. So we don't disagree, we just say fine. So, uh, um, so this energy or consciousness or whatever approximation of word that we use, that today inhabits the institution of the Dalai Lama will seek to take rebirth and will take rebirth in the human form. Because in our tradition of Buddhism, I am now in the practice, my, that is my practice, we believe that our aspiration, compassion is so powerful and impetus that we do not seek moksha. You can quibble about moksha as what is the difference between moksha and nirvana. For practical purposes, we believe that when Hinduism talks about moksha, it says, I am going to, the I is going to break out of the cycle of birth and rebirth and hence out of the cycle of suffering. 
in Buddhism, we say, no, we seek nirvana. And in the process of nirvana, we will consciously seek rebirth in order to be reborn to teach and serve humanity. So that is another very fundamental uh, distinction uh, in, in between Hinduism and uh, Buddhism. And so this subtle energy, form, Atman, whatever you want to call it, of Tenzin Gatso, who is the current holder of the title of the Dalai Lama, will take rebirth and out of choice, not out of accident, in order to touch and serve, teach and serve humanity. And the institution of the Dalai Lama is not important. However, if it is useful, then it will take the form and manifest and assume the institution of the Dalai Lama. And also, if the form needs to be a woman, needs to be born in America, in India, or wherever it is, form and manner will depend on what is useful and will add value. So this aspect of softening the idea of the individual self that retakes rebirth for its own gratification is contrary to the spirit of uh, what was prevailing in his time. Uh, so that is the fact, uh, uh, you know, relative fact of the situation of uh, the Dalai Lama. So we don't know for sure whether there will be a Dalai Lama, there will be if there is a need. But otherwise, the spirit will take rebirth or form or whatever. I mean, I'm not going to commit myself to a particular phrase. And it could be a woman. It could be a man. It could be. But in order to keep away from the politics of the discourse, it will not be in China. That he has made clear. And Buddha's best knowledge was transferred in silence. And we are... If you truly go into the even the quantum physics level, where you mentioned one point, because I got into the science of spiritualism from quantum physics perspective, the mere act of observation causes the particle to behave like a wave of particle. And I always wondered why the Tibetans are under so much of suffering. But the moment I touch any topic on Buddhism, they say life is a suffering. Then if I look at that, and if I look at quantum physics, I say, hey, these guys are manifesting their own suffering. For example, the Buddha never said that life is suffering. You're completely wrong. So your very premise of your presentation, I didn't even want to bother to get into that discourse. He said Dukkha. And as an Indian, as a Hindu, you should know what Dukkha means. It doesn't mean suffering. So the very premise of the unfolding of your philosophy, in my very humble view, just as you find that it's completely contrary to what you believe in, I feel the same way, but I have no, I feel no compulsion to be right or to say it's my way or the highway. And if you don't follow my way, we will perish. And that, and that is the reason of the human predicament. It's much too complex uh, than that. And we just appropriate, you know, we, we try in our tentative ways to share our insights and perspectives and to learn from each other. That's all. It's nothing more than that. And I celebrate you for your candor. I celebrate you for your perspectives. I just don't share them, or many of them. And it just started with this notion of, I mean, it just shows you that how often 
when we got get locked in to our perspectives that we tend to exclude and not hear the other or listen to the other you know they just become sound waves that are bouncing off our ears so i've heard you i have learned from you and i really want to thank you uh, for your thoughts and comments and they enrich i think the discourse of sargam they enrich the discourse and of everybody here including you know, mr divan made some very interesting and important points and thank you mr divan if you're uh, you know still there i i i don't have any certitude and just look at the benign expression of his face he embodies what he's talking about how can i disagree with him you're looking angrily at me don't i think you're a gentleman <laughs> i would like to ask the way he was talking about uh, how as a 5 year old he's picked up and all now there was there's this case of panchan lama whom the chinese imprisoned at the age of 4 uh, then there is the case of lama himself i think he was a french boy who gave up his robe for something spanish spanish spanish, spanish yeah so and and of course i follow the teachings of chogyam prabha read his books so um there are all kinds of stories about reincarnates and about how they've gone about their role please could you say something about it yes absolutely you know the point is that we are not making a claim and i am not making a claim uh, to be representing or being a part of or devoted to a perfect system I, you know, we believe. You know, there have been. You know, sometimes it has been argued, even in the institution of the Dalai Lama, there has been some controversy, and it is an imperfect system. And I think that because we are able and willing to acknowledge that there is an imperfect system, that we tend to get it right more often than we get it wrong. And I think the arrogance of certitude, that my way or the highway, and that everything we do. is perfect and correct and needs to be defended i think is the source of universal conflict so today his holiness will say very often when he's asked a question he says i don't know he doesn't know i don't know and who am i if my teacher is able to very often at in engagements and talk look i don't know i don't understand this that's all we can offer the world i mean you know our uh, our works in progress and our understanding and it is true that you know many tibetans believe that the dalai lama is an incarnation of avalokiteshvara he doesn't and he makes no such claims for himself and he describes himself as a simple buddhist monk and so he is my model as is you know ramakrishna and for different people there are different models and the buddha urged and and so it is dynamic the buddha urged us from the very beginning to say that don't take my word for it is final it must be tested through reason logic and experience and there is not one buddha and uh, rajiv nair bhai was absolutely correct that we are all potential buddhas or whatever you know if whatever whatever you want to say we're all potential lord rams and what i mean this may sound like heresy but i don't believe it is i believe that that when people come in in human form or ramakrishnas and 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 whoever it is we embody that potential now some of us manifest it some of us don't incompletely completely and so we all have elements so you want to call it divine spirit of buddha 
of Allah, of Christ. Now, the problem is if we say we have you know, elements of Allah and Christ, somebody else will get upset. And if we say we have of this, the other person will get upset. That is the genesis of conflict. Uh, please do say something about the Chinese and especially about uh, two things. One, they believe, uh, the Tibetans and the Indians believe, that probably the Chinese are just waiting for this Dalai Lama to leave his body. And now they've come up with a law where, uh, which says that uh, Lamas are not allowed to reincarnate mm. without government permission. So I would really but, like you. Know, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, here is a, here is a communist government you know, denies the existence of the divine or religion. And Mao very famously said that religion is the opium of the masses. Right? But today, you know, a lot of people believe that you know, the China is the most powerful country in the world. It has the, you know, the, 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 the largest growing economy and is potentially going to overtake in terms of the quality of life of its citizens. Uh, overtake many other countries, uh, and yet uh, much of the world fears China for its uh, military power, for its values, which are antithetical to ours. So uh, I, I think that uh, you know it, it is ironical that a, a country like this, a culture, a civilization with a philosophy like this, should say that we are going to decide who the reincarnation of not just the Dalai Lama, of all the Lamas within uh, uh, now the People's Republic of China. But you know what's interesting is that uh, His Holiness never asked for the independence uh, of Tibet. He only asked for autonomy. And because he believed that um, that was in the best A, that, it was in, that was in the best interest of the Tibetan people, that they should be autonomous, and also that he didn't believe in the conventional vocabulary of bargaining. So he said, I am only going to ask what I believe is reasonable and just. So it's not that I will ask for independence and then settle for autonomy. And this created some division uh, within the Tibetan community, which of course, uh, you know, was uh, overcome. Uh, and so it is ironical that uh, uh, a Marxist, not atheist, you see, you know, the government should uh, believe that uh, they have the right to select. And you know what is going to happen is that we don't really know yet as to uh, what His Holiness's position will be. Uh, he has assured us that he has a long life, and uh, long before. He decides to leave his body, and we do believe that enlightened masters are able to choose when they will leave their body. He will give an indication. Uh, there are many options open to him that the ancient Buddhist Sangha used to elect their leader. And even today, many monasteries will elect their leader. And so it's perfectly possible that there will be an election for the next Lama. Or he may say that the institution of the Dalai Lama is no longer relevant. We don't know. And, you know, his, his, uh, the, 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 his frequent refrain uh, at any point when I say that, look, I'm, we want to organize an event, is always what will be useful. So we're not so obsessed with that should be a Dalai Lama. There will be a Dalai Lama if it's useful. And if it's not, they won't. 
So there is a quality of lightness. So there is a particular philosophy Raulbai, Raji believe in that they find useful, that nurtures their happiness, that nurtures peace and harmony in the, in, in, in the world and, and peace with the environment. Wonderful. I mean, we're not attached to a particular point of view because it's a point of view. There is a practicality uh, to this. And, and you, know, we, you know, when we get touched, when we get stuck with... Uh, and, and there are two sort of, uh, you know, variations, I think, in, in the comments that came up. One was, is there an absolute truth? And I think uh, we like to believe that there is no absolute truth. And modern science, even Einstein, was you know, the idea of the theory of relativity. And let's, let's, you know, let's be aware that you know, science is dynamic. The theory of relativity may not, is not final and absolute. It may not be. Uh, or that we live in an expanding universe that is constantly changing and we keep discovering new truths. That when uh, Stephen Hawkins uh, uh, proposed the Big Bang Theory, the question came up, what was there before the Big Bang? So knowledge and truth in our experience are dynamic and it enables us to live better and happier, compassionate lives. And for someone to feel the certitude, and again, it depends on one's uh, you know, need for a diet. So, for example, we believe that, and again, this is when I was giving the example of the Ramakrishna mission. What's amazing about the mission is that when the monks come in and join the order, uh, they finish their apprenticeship, the karma yogis are sent to go and set up schools and things in, you know, in the Naxalbari areas and to do work. The bhaktas go and work in the temple. And so it is uh, sort of divided depending on their mental, uh, mental proclivities. So there are some people who temperamentally need to be able to worship uh, a divine God and need that divine spirit. And it helps them be better human beings, happier human beings, just not with themselves, but after all, we are a community, we are a global community, but in the interaction of the community themselves. So we are very all-embracing uh, of diversity and different perspectives and very happy when it disagrees with us. And it depends on how it manifests uh, and, and in what form and manner uh, it finds uh, expression. If it is a politics of exclusion, which says, look, my way is superior to yours. And so you either conform to my way, my branding, my labeling, or you're not, you're a lesser human being in some ways, then we're uncomfortable with it. And we feel that that's not uh, equitable uh, to the human family. Like uh, when we live this Sharir, okay, when yeah. we live this Sharir and our Atma transfer, is there the transfer of knowledge or our life lessons in our next rebirth? Life yeah. lessons transfer? I mean, if I, you know, again, not getting stuck in words, that there is a continuity because, you know, you, there are two or three things that I think illustrate that. A, there have been enough, not too many, there have been enough cases of uh, documented uh, past life memory. And uh, the, in, in Dharamsala, His Holiness maintains uh, a, a sort of a standby unit of a Western medical doctor, of a monk and three or four people. So when narratives of uh, young, young Tibetans or non-Tibetans you know, come up who seem to have recall. 
they're immediately sent there because as the person grows older, that conscious recall tends to fade. So before it fades, some, an attempt is made at uh, documentation and a number of books have been done documenting past life memory. And uh, it also comes in the case of child proteges that, you know, you suddenly see this four-year-old boy who's really playing the piano with great aplomb. Or some child, you know, is very easily, spontaneously able to... This happened in the case of Ramakrishna, for example. But then, of course, we say he's an avatar. So he brought forward the wisdom of, you know, the gods. And so as a child, he could go and discuss and argue the scriptures. So the, the, the question is that what is uh, when, when, when the, you know, so what is it that reincarnates? And uh, in the Hindu tradition, we identify it as Atman and we give it a continuity. And when they say the Atman, when is enlightenment, merges with Brahman. So we create a separation between Brahman and Atman. And uh, enlightenment is the merging of the two. In our case, we see it, experience it a little differently. And we say that it is, it is a subtle mind which is universal and that it would be sort of like an aspect of Brahman. I mean, I, I, I struggle with words. I mean, my own uh, conceptual understanding is limited. I don't have the wisdom of some of the people in this group. So, yes, there is a continuity of these, you know, we are, we are playing with words here. Huh? Uh, my I mean, I keep coming back to this. My chaya, verbal gymnastics. But just try to intuit that. So I have no claims to that kind of wisdom or experience. So, I'm trying to sort of, you know, uh, communicate that. And I have no certitude that I'm right. <laughs> you have triggered off a very important question, which is the common question. And I don't think there is an easy answer. I can give you a verbal answer, whether it is verb, you know, I... Sometimes in Tibetan, we use the word clear light, or we say subtle mind. And then we can have a long discussion on what is different between subtle mind and Atman. Now, if I'm attached to the idea of Atman, and then you Atman hi hota hai, and aap usko de Ultimately, what matters is that are we leaving, living lives of equanimity? And are we contributing to a peaceful world? where we can all live lives of comfort and ease. And if we are following a belief system or a practice that is contrarian to that, then I think we're not leaving, so, you know, leading such a, a purposeful, benign life as we like to believe. So what is it that drew you to this form of practice? Well, yeah. Uh, A very brief, uh, you know, digression that, uh, you know, I studied in England and I um, felt a great loss of my roots and I plunged in at the deep end. I was a filmmaker into the arts and culture of British society in the 70s, which is a very turbulent time. And uh, so when I came back to uh, India, I connected with Swami Ranganathananda. I went and I did uh, transcendental meditation with um, uh, Maharishi Maheshogi. I went to Auroville. I, you know, went to did uh, yoga with a Swami Gita Nanda in Chennai. 
and uh, uh, and so I was not drawn to any one thing in Buddhism. And it was that I think that, as I mentioned, that if, if Swami Vivekananda had the humility as the principal student of Ramakrishna to say that the Buddha is my Ishta and the Ramakrishna is my master. And from the demonstration that Ramakrishna gave us of the equal validity of each and every philosophical system. So for me, it was the techniques, the practices, the philosophical structure of uh, Buddhism, which, so it evolved for me. It wasn't the yoga. And so now, you know, Buddhism is for me. And I think that Buddhism offered for me, the Buddhist tradition, the most concrete, uh, most inclusive, uh, most harmonious. It, you know, I didn't see anger, exactly as you said, when I first went to Dharamsala, I was very moved in the spirit of the Lama that you referred to, that the Tibetans on their prayer mats said, pray for the Chinese. And every morning's prayer to today starts off with may the veils of illusion lift from the Chinese so that they can see the true nature of the human condition and we can all live as brothers and sisters, each having a different mental diet, just like we like different kinds of food. So it's as simple as that. So whether it's Rahul Bhai or it's Rajiv, everybody is looking at it from a particular personality, a particular prison. And if it brings them contentment and happiness and helps spread contentment and happiness in all, amongst all of us, fantastic. That's why I'm willing to go to a mosque and do the namaz. Maybe I'll learn something there. So I learned from them. I'm only disappointed they didn't seem to learn it. I mean, didn't seem to have got anything <laughs> from me. So next time I shall try harder and reflect on what I can say uh, that will be of some value. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity and this great learning uh, for me. And, you know, I just send out my prayers to everybody that through these dark and difficult times, that may you find equanimity, good health, and be safe, and spread joy and happiness.